Hello everyone and welcome back to talk six in this series on the Wars of the Roses. And this one's called The Dawn of the Tudors. We left off last time with Henry victorious on the battlefield at Bosworth and famously having Richard III's gold coronet placed on his head by Lord Stanley, who hadn't done very much else in the battle, had he? And Richard's body was stripped naked, it was slung over the back of a horse and it was taken to Leicester for public display before being buried in Greyfriars Church. The Plantagenet dynasty was at an end because Henry wasn't a Plantagenet. His mother, Margaret Beaufort, was, but his father's side were from an ancient Welsh noble line. And his new dynasty bore their name, the House of Tudor. Now, before we go on, you might want to grab some of your famous family trees, okay? Um, go for the uh, House of York, part two. You also might want the House of Lancaster. Maybe. And you probably want the Woodvilles. So grab those to hand. Victorious on the battlefield, Henry might, may have been, but secure, he definitely was not. For a start, how legitimate was his actual claim? I mean, Henry's claim was not through Owen Tudor marrying the Dowager Queen of England. Um, it was through his mother, Margaret Beaufort. And if you grab your, your Lancashire, uh, the House of Lancaster family tree, you'll see Henry the Henry the Seventh down there, Margaret Beaufort. And she was related to her great-great-grandfather, Edward III, through John of Gaunt and his affair with uh, Catherine Swinford. And whilst those illegitimate Beaufort children had all been legitimised uh, by Richard II, they had been barred from the line of inheritance by Henry IV. So Henry's claim to the throne had a lot more to do with killing Richard III at Bosworth than it had a, a river of blue blood running through his uh, veins. And compare that to the House of York. Richard of York had a straight line, legitimate line back to Edward III, both through his mother and his father. Thus, so, do, did it, so too did his children, uh, Edward IV, uh, George Duke of Clarence, Richard III and Elizabeth de la Pole. And so consequently, so did their children. So putting it very frankly, Henry Tudor's claim to the throne was weak. You know, if there hadn't been a Lancaster-Yorkist rivalry, they'd probably have never ended up as an obscure, well, he'd have ended up as an obscure Welsh nobleman, but that wasn't the case. And now with his claim to the throne via his mother, and by God's divine intervention at Bosworth, uh, you know, the, playing the God card was always a useful card to play in medieval England. He was crowned King Henry VII at Westminster Abbey on the 30th of October, 1485. To reinforce this royal lineage of his new dynasty, Henry married Elizabeth of York, daughter of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, sister of the princes in the tower. So Henry and Elizabeth's children would have the blood of both the houses of Lancaster and York in their veins. 
Bosworth hadn't been a major battle by Wars of the Roses standards. I mean, the total losses were something like 1,200 compared to the absolute bloodbath that we saw at Towton. And almost no major nobles, apart from the Duke of Norfolk, had been killed. I mean, maybe that helped because there were no Dukes of Somerset from the Beaufort family there to be, to be killed or executed. But um, its real significance lay in the fact that King Richard III, the head of the House of York, had been killed. But just because the head of a house has been killed didn't mean that Henry Tudor, now Henry VII, was safe. If you remember, the death of Richard of York at the Battle of Wakefield hadn't destroyed the, the Yorkist cause. In fact, far from it. The defeat at Tewkesbury and the death of the Prince of Wales and then the murder of Henry VI hadn't destroyed the Lancastrian cause because here was Henry at Bosworth. So all the Yorkists needed to do was find someone to rally round. But who? Ten years ago, there were nine male descendants of Richard of York alive. And now there were just three. There was the son of George, Duke of Clarence, Edward, Earl of Warwick. He was just ten. His father died a traitor and therefore he was ruled out of the line of succession. Nevertheless, he was the grandson of Richard of York and also Warwick the Kingmaker, and he was the nephew of two kings, Edward IV and Richard III. So arguably, he had a stronger claim as Henry to the throne, although having that dad dying a traitor was a problem. Oh, and the other problem was Henry had stuck him in the Tower of London. The other Two men left standing were John de la Pole, the Earl of Lincoln, and his younger brother Edmund. Now, do you remember John de la Pole? I mentioned him in briefly in the, the last talk. Because when Richard III's son had died, Richard made John the heir presumptive. But it had never been confirmed, least of all by Richard, who probably wanted to produce his own heir and not pass the throne to his sister's son. And do you remember, you know, when Anne Neville died? He was immediately on the lookout for a new wife. And there were those you know, nasty rumours that were rife that he, he wanted to you know, enter into that rather creepy marriage with his own niece, uh, the same Elizabeth of York who'd now married uh, Henry. I mean, that was rumour. More solid evidence was that he was actually interested in marrying the sister of the King of Portugal. So why would he confirm John when there were other potential options for him to produce an heir. And remember, Richard was only 33 when he was killed at Bosworth Field. Nevertheless, John de la Pole was a potential leader. And if you go to the House of York, you'll see him over there on the left-hand side. He was 25, a man, a warrior. He could rule in his own right, unlike his 10-year-old cousin, the Earl of Warwick. His mother was Edward IV's sister. And quite frankly, if Margaret Beaufort could give Henry a legitimate line to Edward III, well, sure as heck, so could his mother. And that was it, really, though. That was all left of the House of York to oppose Henry. Or was it? What if Edward V or his younger brother 
had not been murdered? What if they were still alive and waiting to return? Enter Lambert Simnel. In May 1487, 18 months after Henry's coronation at Westminster Abbey, a rival was proclaimed king. Lambert Simnel was born of humble origins, but a priest, a man called Richard Simon, had tutored him with enough reading and learning and etiquette to pass him off as a noble. So, after initially claiming that he was Richard of York, the younger prince in the tower, uh, the priest Simon changed his story and claimed that Lambert's symbol was in fact Edward, Earl of Warwick, who had escaped from the Tower of London. And Simon took Lambert over to Ireland, where there was still strong Yorkist support. And there on the 24th of May, 1487, in Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin, Lambert was crowned King Edward VI. And then he was joined by none other than John de la Pole, the Earl of Lincoln, supported by 2,000 Swiss mercenaries who had been supplied by Richard and Edward's other sister, Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy. Now, did the Earl of Lincoln, John de la Pole, really believe this was his cousin, Warwick, escaped from the Tower? Or did he see him as a useful pawn in his own ambitions for the throne? They could have an uprising, and then he could bump off Simnel or prove that Simnel was an imposter. Let's face it, Richard had done the similar thing, hadn't they? Similarly, did the Duchess of Burgundy see Simnel as her nephew, as she publicly claimed he was? Or was she just looking for any reason to level the score with Henry Tudor? Well, quite frankly, we don't know. What we do know is that on the 4th of June, Simnel, the Earl of Lincoln, their Swiss mercenaries and a force of Irish landed in Lancashire. And covering an impressive 200 miles in five days, they crossed over the Pennines to Doncaster. And then they turned and moved south, pushing a royalist army under the command of Edward Woodville, Lord Scales, back through Sherwood Forest to Nottingham. Edward Woodville, if you get the Woodvilles, Lord Scales, he was Elizabeth Woodville's brother. He'd actually been the Lord High Admiral and Richard III hadn't been able to get his hands on him because he'd, he'd cleared off from one of his ships. So now Woodville, Lord Scales, was holed up in Nottingham with the rebel army just outside. On the 14th of June, Woodville was joined by troops, reinforcements led by two survivors of the Battle of Bod Bosworth. The first was Lord Strange. Do you remember him? Lord Strange was Lord Stanley's hostage son, who Stanley basically said, well, I've got plenty of sons. And so Richard uh, gave the order to behead him before the Battle of Bosworth, but everyone forgot to do that. Well, here he was, alive and well, turning up with reinforcements on behalf of Henry at Nottingham. And the, the other commander was Rhys Ap Thomas. Do you remember the man who is purported to have killed Richard III and an old uh, retainer and Welsh supporter from Pembrokeshire. And behind them came the Royalist Army, led by Henry himself, together with the ever-faithful uncle, Jasper Tudor, and John de la Vere, the 13th Earl of Oxford, veteran of Bosworth and the Battle of Barnet. The following day, the 15th of June, 
Henry moved his army eastwards along the old Foss Road from Nottingham towards Newark on the south side of the River Trent. And just outside the village of East Stoke, they found the rebel army had crossed the Trent and had formed up ready to meet them. The Royalist army was uh, 12,000 strong. It outnumbered Simnel's and Lincoln's rebels who stood at about 8,000. So still, you know, 20,000 people fought on this day in Nottinghamshire. And just as at uh, Bosworth, Henry let the Earl of Oxford take the tactical command. As royalist arrows rained down on the, on the rebels who were on the high ground, they charged down. This was this wild charge of Irish fury and the disciplined, hardened Swiss mercenaries. And as they hit the royal line, the royalist line buckled but the veteran Oxford held his men and his archers started to slaughter the lightly armoured Irish. The Swiss mercenaries were armed with handguns but could not match the, the archers' rate of fire. We've talked about that in the past. And then, under this withering attack of our arrows, Oxford ordered his own charge. And the rebels were trapped between the advancing Royalist army and the River Trent. It was a complete bloodbath. Over 4,000 of the 8,000 rebels died. And anything between 500 and 3,000 royalists, we're not sure, also perished. John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, one of the three remaining contenders for the Yorkist crown, was killed in the fight. Lambert Simnel was captured. Whilst some people say that Bosworth was the end of the Wars of the Roses. In fact, there are some people that actually say Tewkesbury was the end of the real War of the Roses. I think it's fair to say that the Battle of Stoke Fields was the real end. Because there was never another battle this size in England until the English Civil War 160 years later. Henry survived the biggest challenge to his reign. Henry also realised that Simnel was just a puppet and was definitely not a member of the royal family, not least because the Earl of Warwick was in Tower of London. So rather than putting him to death or putting him in prison, he put him to work in the royal kitchens. But it wasn't over yet. Then in 1490, another pretender to the throne appeared, uh, Perkin Warbeck. Once again, this man was backed by Margaret of Burgundy. He claimed to be Richard, the younger son of the two princes in the tower. He first attempted to land at Deal in Kent, but his forces were defeated before he had even got to the shoreline. Uh, so he got back on his ship and cleared off. And then he had further attempts to raise rebellion in the, the north of England and in Ireland, and they failed completely. Seven years later, September 1497, he landed in Cornwall with a measly 120 men. But somehow he managed to gather an army of 6,000 Cornishmen who declared him King Richard IV. Capturing the city of Exeter, his army then moved up towards Somerset. However, when they got to the region of Glastonbury, he heard that government troops were gathering and Warbeck deserted his own men and fled and was captured at uh, Bewley Abbey, Bowley Abbey in Hampshire. He was then paraded through the streets of London to much derision and Henry made, didn't give him a chance of working in the kitchens. He was imprisoned in the tower. Two years later, 1499, um, Warbeck and Edward, Earl of Warwick, attempted to escape from the tower. 
and Henry had them executed. Just as an aside, you know, I'm, I previously said that Henry, you know, I've dismissed Henry's role in the murder of the princes in the tower. Yet, you know, he was more than happy to lock up two potential claimants in the tower and then execute them. So, you know, maybe I'll leave that one with you, right? <laughs> Uh, still, there was one Yorkist alive to threaten him. Edmund de la Pole, the Earl of Suffolk and younger brother of John, Earl of Lincoln. Unlike Warbeck and Simnel, he was definitely a legitimate claimant. Uh, arguably, he with as strong a claim to the throne as, as Henry himself. In 1501, Edmund fled England without, or left England without royal permission. Edmund de la Pole made his way to Austria, where the, you know, the Austrian Emperor, Maximilian I, acknowledged him as the Yorkist pretender, but refused to fund any rebellion. And Edmund then really just continued touring Europe, seeking some sort of financial and military support for a, an attempt to reclaim the throne. In 1506, he was en route to Spain when his ship was blown off course and ended up in England. I mean, Henry couldn't believe his good luck. The only living Yorkist claimant was placed under lock and key at the Tower of London. That seems to be Henry's preferred place of imprisonment for everyone, doesn't it? So finally, Henry could rest assured that he was safe. And with a son ready to succeed him, the Tudor dynasty was going to survive. The Wars of the Roses were one of the bloodiest periods in English history. In a 30-year period, there were 17 battles in England, one in Ireland, costing over 45,000 lives. And as you might have worked out by now, it was not about the counties of Yorkshire and Lancashire going to war with each other, despite what the locals proudly say. And the name The Wars of the Roses as a name is a misnomer. The, the red and white roses had historically been used by the Dukes of Lancaster and York, respectively, going back over 200 years before the Wars of the Roses. It was an, it was an emblem. And whilst they were the emblems of York and Lancaster, they were not used throughout these dynastic wars that we've been talking about. Yeah, the white rose was a symbol that was used by the Yorkists, but it wasn't the only symbol and it certainly wasn't the main one. Edward IV had the sun in splendour, great big sun. Richard had the wild boar. And the rest, Red Rose of Lancashire, seems to have been used even less. You know, it's a question, isn't it? If Henry Tudor was the champion of the House of Lancaster at Bosworth, why was he fighting under the Red Dragon of Wales? And where on earth was the, the Red Rose banners at Bosworth? They weren't there. We then created this, Henry created this Tudor rose, a red rose of Lancashire with the white inner leaf from York, you know, combining the houses of York and Lancashire. And yet we know that the idea that these two houses and their armies fought under these, these, these flowers is a complete myth. The myth of these two roses coming together to form a new dynasty was a powerful and youthful narrative for one man and one man only, Henry Tudor. His dynasty was both new, but it also was drawing upon the old lineage of both lines running up to Edward III. And Henry Tudor was the master propagandist on behalf of his new dynasty. 
and we've seen he needed to be. So the myth started by Henry gained traction when another Tudor propagandist got his hands on it, William Shakespeare. In his play Henry VI, which by the way was written over a hundred years after Bosworth, let alone Henry VI's time, he portrayed both the sides picking roses as emblems of which side they were on. And such is the power of the bard that these emblems stuck. And what's really interesting is it was never referred to as Wars of the Roses until this title was used by the novelist Sir Walter Scott in the early 19th century. The Wars of the Roses remain a, a misunderstood and in many cases forgotten part of, of England's history. It was when the medieval age, age came to an end. And there's this very clear divide, I think there's a clear divide in most people's minds, between the Middle Ages and the Tudors. And in many ways, you know, we are, we're quite familiar with the Tudors, whereas that Middle Age era really seems far off and murky. And England's glory started with the Tudors. That's what we believe. And yet, the Wars of the Roses, what a story. I hope you've enjoyed, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I have really enjoyed researching it. Quite frankly, you couldn't write a twisting, turning, bloodthirsty story like this. And this is real life. Although someone did try to write a story like this because the Wars of the Roses were the inspiration of George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire stories, better known as Game of Thrones. When Henry died in 1509, he was succeeded by his son, Henry VIII. It was the first successful handover from a king to his adult son in over a hundred years. In 2012, an excavation in a public car park on the site of the Greyfriars Friary in Leicester found a skeleton and DNA analysis proved it was the body of Richard III, an amazing, amazing archaeological find. His body now lies in Leicester Cathedral. The last Yorkist claimant, Edmund de la Pole, was not pardoned upon Henry VIII's ascension to the throne. He remained in the Tower of London, where four years later he was beheaded. Henry VIII was taking no chances of a repeat of the Wars of the Roses. Indeed, it's been argued by some that uh, his fear of a dynastic infighting that resulted in the Wars of the Roses drove Henry VIII in his desire to have an undisputed heir and that it was his fear of returning to that chaos of the Yorkists and the Lancastrians that had as much to do with his divorce from Catherine of Aragon as any desire to break from Rome or have his wicked way with Anne Boleyn. Lambert Simnel continued to work in the royal kitchens and ultimately, ultimately became a falconer. It's believed he had at least one child bearing the Simnel surname and he died sometime peacefully, died between somewhere between 1525 and 1535. Records are a bit, bit weird on that one. The mighty Neville family ceased to exist after the execution of Edward, Earl of Warwick. Their great adversaries, the Percys, of Northumberland, however, continued to hold the continues to this day to hold the Northumberland title now as dukes rather than earls. And Annick Castle in Northumberland is still their family home after 700 years. 
Lord Stanley, the husband of Margaret Beaufort and the great survivor of the Wars of the Roses, was made the Earl of Derby after Bosworth Field. And his descendants continue to hold that title to this day. We're currently on the 19th Earl. The 12th Earl was a keen horse, racer, uh, was a keen horse racer who established a race meeting that still bears his name, the Derby. The Stanleys continue to have that significant interest in Lancashire and the city of Liverpool. In fact, Everton and Liverpool's ground are separated by Stanley Park. And in 1914, the 17th Earl of Derby organised one of the most successful recruitment campaigns for volunteers in the First World War. In, over, just, over two, in just two days, he convinced 1,500 Liverpudlians to join up in two PALS battalions. The Woodvilles and the Greys became loyal servants of the Tudors. Elizabeth Woodville's sister, Catherine, married Henry's uncle, Jasper Tudor. Thomas Gray, the Marquess of Dorset, his grandson, married Henry VII's granddaughter. And they had a daughter. You might have heard of her. Lady Jane Grey. Elizabeth Woodville was treated with the dignity and respect reserved for a dowager queen for the rest of her life. She was present at the birth of her grandson, the future Henry VIII, and then she spent her last five years in Bermondsey Abbey in London. She died in 1492 and was buried close to her husband, King Edward IV, in St George's Chapel, Windsor Castle. Henry VII, Henry Tudor and Elizabeth of York were married for 17 years. She bore him seven children. Two daughters became queens of Scotland and France, respectively, and her son became King Henry VIII of England. In 1503, she gave birth to a daughter, Catherine, who died within days. And just a few days after that, Elizabeth died from an infection at the age of 37. Margaret Beaufort outlived her son by two months. Her last key role was ensuring that the smooth transition of power from her son to her grandson and helping that young 18-year-old Henry VIII choose the people to serve on his first Privy Council. The Tudors were to reign for the next 100 years and to this date are probably the most famous, the most studied, uh, one of the most iconic royal houses in English history. And their story is every bit as exciting and intriguing and interesting as the Wars of the Roses. But that as they say, is for another story.